Welcome back to the Warts and All podcast. It's all about digging about in the history of the human body. Gory stories, gruesome facts, a bit of anatomy and a lot of fun. I'm Susie Edge, medical doctor and historian, and I just love finding out how we've treated the human body throughout history, in life and in death, but let's face it, mostly in death. Today is November the 11th, 2022. It's over a hundred years since the ending of the war to end wars, and yet it feels, more than ever in my life, that we're teetering on the edge of another big one. But we're going to look back in time. A wee warning, I will be talking about painful diseases, trauma, and also torture. So if you would rather not hear about those things today, that's not a problem, and I'll catch you again another time. On to mail this week, I've had a question twice this week, so I thought I'd bring it here. It's about the difference between buying my book, Mortal Monarchs, on Amazon versus other independent bookshops. And the difference to me, personally, in my pocket is actually very small. So the difference then comes down to whether or not you want to go to Amazon or you want to go to an independent bookshop. The difference is Amazon is selling the book for £12 something. Independent bookshops have a recommended retail price of sixteen ninety nine, and then you might pay for shipping as well if you're ordering online. The thing is, I'm not one to judge. I am just so massively grateful if anyone wants to buy my book and read my book. Uh, it looks like a lot of people are buying it as Christmas presents, which is just absolutely makes my heart swell. But where you get it from, really, I, honestly, I'm just so grateful that you can. And if you want to go to Amazon and pay a little less, then go for it, I say. Obviously, that isn't endorsing Amazon as a company, but sometimes we have to look after our own pockets as well. So, as I said, no judging here. A little bit about the podcast and sponsorship. I don't have a sponsor for this podcast, but if you would like to support my endeavours, then please grab a copy of my book, Mortal Monarchs. It's available from the usual bookshops in the UK. I'm still waiting for news of its arrival as a hardcover in the US. It's getting frustrating, but sadly it's out of my hands. Believe me, when it comes, I will shout about it from the rooftops. In the meantime, the audio version is still doing really well. The publishers are so chuffed with that. I can't tell you how much fun I had recording it. When we were done, I wanted to do it again. I was like, let me have another go. But we'd finished and we had to get it out there. And it's available on Amazon on audio. And that's all Amazons, not just in the UK. For now, though... Let's climb aboard an 18th century merchant ship and wax lyrical about ears. Sorry, I couldn't resist, and I did say ears. I know, I know they're not the sexiest of vital organs out there, but it's surprising how many ears have caused so much trouble. We're going to talk now about the ear that started a war. The year was 1731, and the British merchant ship Rebecca had set sail from Jamaica bound for London in England. On board the ship... Captain by a Robert Jenkins was a much-loved commodity of sugar, and lots of it. The ship's precious cargo matched the records, but often these ships would come and go in these seas, and they'd be carrying goods that did not match the ship's inventories. Contraband was in high demand, and the pull of the black market was strong. There was always a chance that these ships had something to hide. In previous years, Queen Anne and her Hanoverian successors had signed a series of treaties regarding trade in the Caribbean. A monopoly had been granted by Spain to the British to supply slaves, 5,000 of them a year. The Spanish had no influence in West Africa where the slaves were being taken from and they did not directly engage in the transatlantic slave trade. 
but they did rely on them for their exploits in the new world. And so they traded with those who did deal in slaves. As well as a trade of slaves, the British were allowed two ships per year to sell 500 tonnes each of goods in present-day Panama and in present-day Mexico. Stop and search was all part of the deal, the give and take, each protecting their own interests. The British were awarded the Asiento as part of the Treaty of Utrecht with the end of the War of Spanish Succession. It was then passed to the powerful South Sea Company. In it there was an agreement with the Spanish that they could stop and search some of the vessels in the Caribbean to ensure that the British were sticking to the agreements. And this was one of those days. The Coast Guard ship Isabella came alongside and demanded Rebecca be stopped. The British ship was boarded and searches were made. And nothing untoward was found, and the Spanish captain, the privateer, Juan de Leon Fandino, was not happy. The ship was searched more, and a crew member was beaten. The British captain gave nothing away. He had a rope thrown around his neck, and he was hanged, though not to the point of killing him. And Jenkins still had nothing to say to the privateer. He gave nothing away. He claimed to have nothing else hidden on board, besides a small amount of money that would see them safely back to England. The Spanish were not appeased, and Jenkins' ear was cut at and then ripped off with a warning to the king that should he think of doing a spot of smuggling, that even he would suffer the same fate. This incident was not alone. There were many stories of outrageous Spanish behaviour reaching British shores. I'm pretty sure they were probably as bad as each other. But Jenkins risked losing his cargo, his ship. He risked imprisonment and torture, and maybe he even risked his life. One story told of a Dutch captain who was forced to eat his own hand after the Spanish Coast Guard chopped it off. The torturers kindly boiled it for him first. Presumably it made the whole thing a lot less chewy. When Jenkins and his dishevelled crew arrived back in London, there was a ripple of interest in the sea captain's story. He presented his pickled ear to the king in protest of his treatment under the agreement with the Spanish. It all went quiet, though, and not because Jenkins couldn't hear anything, but because politics is politics. When it was convenient, Jenkins' ear was heard from again. Years later, when the Tories were looking for more trade in the West Indies, and they were looking to oust a long-standing Whig government under Walpole, they were looking for a fight. The stories of Spanish aggression were brought up, and no doubt embellished. Jenkins was brought to Parliament. He was paraded with a severed ear in a bottle in front of the House of Commons. Justice was demanded and increased trade in the Caribbean was demanded more so. Jenkins and his missing ear had now become political capital. In a sketch of the time, Walpole is seen swooning at the sight of a severed body part laid out on the table in front of him. There was no choice. War was inevitable. The British wanted more from the West Indies. It was Thomas Carlyle that named the war the War for Jenkins' Ear when he wrote about it over a hundred years later, and the name stuck. Well, we all love a good hook, especially one that talks about severed body parts. The Spanish refer to the war as the Guerra del Asiento, the Asiento being the trade agreement between Spain and other nations, particularly for slaves. The war had a rocky start for Spain, but in the end they defended their positions and the British attempt to gain territory and further their trade ambitions was thwarted. 
By 1750, the British Asiento ended with the Treaty of Madrid after the War of Jenkins' Ear. In at least one article I read about this, it made the rather sensational claim that Jenkins' Ear is the most famous ear in history, and yet Gaudi's book, The War of Jenkins' Ear, calls it the Forgotten War. The most famous severed ear in history? I'm not so sure. It might be the one that led to the most consequences, but I'm pretty sure that if I said severed ear, someone else's would spring to mind. Let's look at the ear, shall we, for a moment. It's quite tricky. You'll need a mirror. Or look at someone else's. That's fine. So the ear comprises of a couple of different parts. You've got the outer part, known as the pinna. That's the bit we can see. It's the part that's cut off. And luckily for anyone losing their pinna, function is not totally lost. See, the pinna channels sounds into the inner ear, so without it, things could be a little quieter. Any scar or scab forming in the area could impact those sounds getting through, but also to lose one's ear is not the end of the world. The pinna is made of cartilage, but has, as anyone knows who's ever cut their ear, has a reasonable blood supply. As in any scenario, when the skin is compromised, there's a chance that infection might follow. It could bleed quite a lot. And as in any scenario, when a skin is compromised, there's a chance that infection might follow. Or worse, that that might result in sepsis, a systemic response to the infection. Well, Jenkins survived all of it, and he sailed back to England with the wind between his sails, I guess. Now, I'm guessing that the ear you were thinking of belonged to Vincent van Gogh. In December of 1888, van Gogh was living in a house with his friend and fellow artist Gauguin. Relationships, though, were not Vincent's strong point. The artists were not getting on, and an argument led to Gauguin threatening to return to Paris. On the 23rd of December, he walked out after van Gogh handed him a cutting from a newspaper. It read, The murderer took flight. Gauguin went off to a hotel, and later that night, Van Gogh took a razor blade to his own ear. He wrapped up the severed ear, now a lump of bloodied cartilage, and he took it to a brothel that he had frequented. He handed it over to be given to Rachel, with the request that they guard the object carefully. The next morning, a policeman found Van Gogh lying in blood-stained sheets. There was blood all over the house. He assumed the man was dead. Well, you would, wouldn't you? He wasn't dead, though. He was admitted to hospital, and Van Gogh denied any recollection of events when he woke up. He was diagnosed with acute mania and generalised delirium, and he later voluntarily entered an asylum at Saint-Rémy-du-Provence. When it comes to Van Gogh cutting off his own ear, many have tried to explain it with some strangely tentative connections, most of them to a self-punishment. One cited a book of the time that involved an ear being cut off as a punishment. Another said there might be a connection to Jack the Ripper, who cut off the ear of one of his victims. It's shockingly tentative, just because it was the same time, and it wasn't even the same country. Others make the connection to Peter cutting off the ear of Malchus, after Judas betrayed Christ. Cropping, or cutting off of ears, was a punishment, as was nailing the ear to a pillory post, meaning that to get away they'd have to lose the ear in the process, or rip it. These were punishments of the centuries before Van Gogh's era. In 1538, in England, a lad called Thomas Barry reputedly died from shock after facing cropping. His punishment was for spreading rumours of the death of Henry VIII. That wasn't allowed. 
In the same period, one could face cropping for the crime of vagrancy, and if you ran out of ears and yet were convicted of vagrancy again, you could hang. In 17th century England, ears were cut off those publishing contrarian religious views. Cropping comes up in ancient Assyrian law and in the Babylonian Code of Hammurabi. Cropping was still used as a punishment in some parts of the states into the 19th century. For some, the reason for Van Gogh's self-motivation lie in how much his ear he actually sliced off. Self-mutilation, I meant to say there, not self-motivation. A small chunk, they said, being seen as more of a cry for help than the whole thing, which was a far more dangerous thing to do considering the risks of blood loss or infection. The memories of those recounting the events differ widely. As usual, the extent of the ear loss is either minimised or embellished depending on the agenda of those recounting the act. I would suggest it was Van Gogh's that was the more famous of the severed ears, even though Jenkins' ear loss was a catalyst in the loss of many lives. It is Van Gogh's ear, after all, that has been recreated using DNA by artists only a couple of years ago. You can see the living replica on display. But of course these were not the only ears that found their own place in history. In 1992, a British political battle became known as the War of Jennifer's Ear. Jennifer was a little girl who waited a year for an NHS operation to cure her glue ear. The Labour Party turned her story into a political broadcast, and it led to a storm over the ethics of using a young girl for political purposes. Labour lost the election. I'm starting to see a pattern here. Invoke ears and you might just lose. In 1997, Mike Tyson bit Evander Holyfield's ear off in a fight. No, he didn't bite it off. He just bit it. <laughs> it just came out. That sounds more dramatic, doesn't it? We always remember that it was Mike Tyson that did it, but it's harder sometimes to remember that it was poor Evander Holyfield's ear that was bitten. It was quite handy for Tyson, I suppose, that we remember him because, well, it takes our thoughts off his other misdemeanours otherwise, doesn't it? I'm not going to lie, it's been a bit strange digging about in ears. I didn't think I'd be able to make a whole podcast about it. I remember being in theatre with an ENT surgeon when I was a medical student and him questioning me about the anatomy and the function of the ear. And it was quite fun because he turned the operating theatre into an ear, as in I had to walk in the door and then describe what I would find, what would be in front of me, what would I feel if I put my hand out to the side... What would I be walking on? What was I looking at if I looked up at the ceiling? And what would I bump into if I walked forward? He, he turned that into quite a fun lesson. And I remember quite clearly the anatomy of it all because of that. Shame we couldn't do that with some other organs. I guess we could, but it, it might be a little bit harder, certainly to put your imagination into it. Anyway, that was some ears that found their place in history. What fun. Up here in the Highlands, it's been strangely warm. I keep lighting the fire out of habit, but it was 16 degrees here yesterday. I'm part of a team organising the local mountain festival, and we're organising skiing and winter skills, and it seems so odd that there's not any snow to talk of. I hope it comes. It has been really windy, though, and the lights keep flickering. If the electricity still flows and the phone is switched on, you can find me on TikTok at Susie Edge, and on Twitter and Be Real at Susie Edge. And on Instagram, I'm at suze.edge. I also launched a new podcast recently where I have a look behind the scenes of trying to make it as a writer and content creator, having left my job as a hospital doctor in the NHS. 
It's called How to Lack Commitment, and if you're interested in the backstory, you can find me there too. For now, thanks for listening to the Warts and All podcast. Please give us a rate and review if you're enjoying the human body history chats, and I'll see you again soon.